Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And now, the Entertainment Brothers. Here's Larry Hackett and Thomas Valentino. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another week and another episode of the Entertainment Brothers. I am your entertainment emissary, Larry Hackett. And I am your entertainment attorney, Thomas Valentino. Thomas, the number one movie in the country, in fact, in the world. It's Top Gun Maverick, which is the remake of the 1986 movie starring Tom Cruise. It has been seen as being the resurrection, not only of Tom Cruise, but of Hollywood itself, that people are now coming back to the movie theaters. It made more than $150 million on opening weekend. It's cruising towards a half a billion dollars. It is a runaway success and seen as um, an example of the lifeblood returning to the movie industry. It also has an example of another piece of the movie industry coming back to life, and that is a copyright lawsuit. Why don't you explain where we're at and how this happens and what is the legacy uh, of Top Gun and how we got to this place where Paramount, the studio that made the movie, is being sued by the family of the folk of the guy who wrote the original story. Right. So what happened was the author who wrote the original story passed away. And so this lawsuit is being brought by his estate, specifically his wife. And what happened is that Back in the day in the 80s, when this was first, when Top Gun was being released, there was a story that he wrote and Paramount went to him and they entered into an assignment of rights agreement because they wanted to have the rights to the story to be careful, which makes sense. And exactly. So- they, did it, they did it right from the beginning. They were like, they saw the story. They bought it almost immediately. Jerry Bruckheimer bought it almost immediately. It was all above board, right? Right. Right. And very smart move, because sometimes people don't do that and then they leave themselves open to a claim. So from the beginning, this was done the right way. Now, what happens is after a period of 35 years, there is a right to recapture the copyright if you assign the copyright. So what we have is the widow who technically takes the place of her husband and they serve notice on Paramount that they wanted to recapture the copyright. Now, there's a lot of technical requirements involved with that to do it properly, but there's little question that they did it properly. Um, it's, it's complicated again, but it was done properly. Uh, there's a certain window of time when you have to do it. Um, and so Paramount though, the defense of Paramount 
is very, very interesting. There is a defense, and it's called Which derivative is? works exception. And so if the work is derivative from the first work, then that's a defense to say, we don't have to renew the copyright. You, as the heir or the heiress, don't have the right to recapture the copyright. And this is basically, while a lot of these copyright infringements are headline grabbing, because in this case, we also have like a week ago, Mariah Carey was being sued for, all I want for Christmas is you. They make really good headlines, but to lawyers, these are basic garden variety copyright infringement cases where one person makes an argument and then the other person usually has a defense. And the argument that the plaintiff makes who's the person bringing the lawsuit is usually the same. They're claiming that they have the right to recapture the copyright. And then the person who's being sued, in this case, Paramount, has a defense that is either uh, the derivative works exception or in some cases, there's something known as a work for hire, which means that if the work was done as a work for hire, then the person doesn't have the right, the other person, to recapture the work. And, and okay. that's exactly what's going on here. All right. So let me wade in here dangerously as a layman, not as an attorney. Right. So, you know, I'm playing with knives that are too sharp for me right now. But my understanding is this man, Ehud Yoni, wrote the story in 1983 for California Magazine. Jerry Bruckheimer saw it, thought it was fantastic. It was a very well-written story and said this would be a make a great movie. Two other people wrote the screenplay, but no one ever denied that it was based on the film or based on the story that Yoni wrote. As you say, fast forward, 2012, he dies. His wife becomes his heir. 2018, which as best as I can tell, is about a year, several months before shooting begins on the new movie. He fought, she files claim saying, the copyright comes back to me. Paramount doesn't respond. The movie gets delayed. There's some trailers that are ready in 2019. But by this point, again, we, we know that Paramount has been notified that they want this copyright back. Um, and now we have, of course, a huge blockbuster movie and a lawsuit comes out and they obviously want a piece of the pot. Talk about that derivative element here. The movie's called Top Gun Maverick. The original movie was called Top Gun. I'm having a hard time seeing the derivative part of that. I mean, if you were Paramount, why don't you take Paramount's point of view? What would you say makes this derivative and therefore not under the grasp of their attempt to get the copyright back? Oh, well, the story, the characters, um, those are very, very similar. You basically have characters and a storyline that was developed in the first movie. And the characters and storyline more or less follow in the second movie. In other words, the second movie is not so original and is not so distinct as to make it qualify separately for something that's not a derivative work. It doesn't, it doesn't have enough distinctiveness to it to make it not qualify. So you think on that claim alone, whatever the other issues of law may be, on that claim, Paramount is going to have a hard time. It's pretty, I mean, the, uh, a judge might say, this isn't derivative. It's basically the same stuff. Is that what you're saying? Right. Well, and that's, that's the Paramount's favor because derivative means that it's similar. 
okay, that it's a similar story. In other words, there's nothing original about the news story that would allow the heirs to say, oh, we get a new copyright on this. Paramount is saying, this is really the same old story. So you don't have a right to recapture because we own it. Oh. Right. Interesting. Right. Right, because it's a derivative work, right? In other words, we owned it from the beginning and we own it now. And the fact that you're trying to get it back is not allowed because it's it's the same, it's essentially the same story and the same characters. So every time I try to tell the same story over and over again, I you can't try to get it back from me. Right, there's always an argument when, and, and these things happen in recording agreements and they happen in any case of intellectual property, where someone who's trying to capture the right, just because you have a right doesn't mean you're automatically going to get something back. Okay. So you see this a lot in the music industry as well, where an artist will say, I have the right to my copyrights to come back to me. Okay, but what the record companies argue is essentially a similar argument they're saying to the artists, when you sign this our recording agreements, you're admitting that these are works for hire, okay? And if they're works for hire, we own them in perpetuity. We, the record company, own it forever. And so you can't get back something that you didn't own to begin with. And Paramount's making the same argument. It's a similar argument. Well, it's interesting, you know, I couldn't find out going back um, how this story was assigned in the first place. That is to say, the magazine story. In the world I come from, if someone writes a magazine story, the magazine owns the story. They don't own the story. So I don't know where California Magazine, which may not even be around anymore, comes into this. Um, But that doesn't seem to be what's going on here. This is all fast forwarding into... Well, as the author, as the author, he had the rights to the story. Now, I don't know how that... Yeah, no one debates that. You're right. Right. So he had the rights to the story and he granted the rights by an assignment. It it was literally called an assignment of rights agreement. Mm -hmm. And he granted the rights to the story to Paramount so that they could make the movie. And so now, now his estate is trying to say, well, the 35 years is expired. We want the copyright back. And Paramount's saying, you can't have it back because you didn't own it to begin with. We owned it then and we own it now. And it's a very, very typical argument. I mean, I rarely see these things where uh, a party who has a right to recapture serves notice the way they're supposed to, because there's certain requirements, windows and things of that nature, okay? And always on the other side, the other person who owns the copyright currently is always going to try to mount a defense to say, wait a minute, not so fast. I'm just not going to roll over and give this to you because in in the case of the movie like Top Gun or anything of that nature, you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars as we've seen. That's right. And the fact... Right. And the fact that the movie started filming two months after the notice was given, you and I both know that the movie was being planned years ahead of time. Um, and Paramount didn't seem to me to see the need of having to go to the heirs and say, we're going to make this movie and we want to keep the copyright or renew the copyright or whatever it is. Um, right. Counselor, in your expert opinion, where does this go? Does it go to court or does it get settled? What happens? It's in court. 
And they're asking for something called a declaratory judgment, which would tell the parties what their rights are. Um, they they want to try. They sent a cease and desist. Paramount basically ignored it. Um, I think that Paramount has a pretty good defense here. So again, unlike most people, I'm not afraid to predict that if there's going to be a winner, I think it's going to be Paramount. If Paramount, if it's not a victory for Paramount, then what likely might happen is that there would be a settlement and Paramount would grant a certain amount of the proceeds to the heirs and then they would get that money in addition to anything else that they might currently be making. Right, right. One has to wonder whether they would have sued if the movie hadn't made $150 million in its opening weekend. Right, well, that, that's the other thing. And, and that's, you know, you, look, a lot of people have rights to recapture their copyrights, right? Um, right? Now, let's say you did, and, you know, it's worth $100. When the right to renew comes up, you're not really going to care because you're not even going to be able to pay the legal bills to recapture the copyright, right? right? In a case like this, it's a different story because we're talking about a lot of money. In the case of recording artists, there's, there's the big artists who make the headlines, and those are the ones where you're seeing the battles for copyright control and recapturing. But there's a lot of artists that very few people know about that make very little money and they just don't even bother to deal with this because they know it's not worth the hassle, particularly from the economic standpoint, because you have to get a lawyer who's specialized in this area in order to do this properly. Right. Well, Hollywood going the way it is going, you can be assured that there will be son, nephew, daughter of Top Gun coming out sometime soon because that's how these things go, right? Once you hit a, it may have taken 35 years to make the second one. It won't take another 35 to make the third one. So this thing has got to get settled one way or the other. And it'll be very interesting to see what happens. Correct. So on to our second uh, exhibit B of the week. Um, okay. Matthew McConaughey and the great gun debate. Um, yes. We tend to stay away from politics per se uh, yes. in this podcast. However, Matthew McConaughey has waded into the um, gun control, gun restriction, um, gun law debate um, very emotionally. Um, this week, he appeared in the, he wrote a column in the Austin uh, News American newspaper. He then appeared in Washington meeting with both the president and walking into the White House press room and to make an impassioned plea um, for various gun control measures. Um, this is, it was very dramatic and got a lot of attention as you can expect. Um, Matthew McConaughey was born in Uvalde, Texas and he reacted very strongly to what happened there as many, many, many people did. But because he was born there, he had that special connection. There's also the element that Matthew McConaughey for the past several years has been flirting with public life. Uh, and with a future that's not necessarily just in Hollywood. He had a memoir that came out a couple of years ago where he discussed some notions about running for office. He was asked about running for office and he considered running for office in Texas last year and explicitly said, no, I'm not going to do that. Once you've done that you and you then turn up in the White House press room talking about gun restrictions, um, you're entering into a level of debate that is different from your ordinary Hollywood star appearing in a PSA or tweeting something. Um, what he's asking for is not total bans on guns, not even a total ban on AR-15s. Uh, AR he's talking about raising the age from 18 to 21, 
having other kinds of restrictions, other kinds of training. He makes very logical arguments about the idea that if you were to join the army at, 15, at 18, like you can buy an AR-15 at 18, you'd be trained in the army or in the military on how to use this weapon. Whereas now you can buy it and go out into the afternoon and do whatever you like with it. So he makes a lot of, he, he tends to be clustered in this sort of reasonable gun um, control measures, not total outright bans. Um, I thought it played pretty well. I mean, it was, he appeared in Washington at the time of debate in Congress, and we know where that debate is going to go. The Democrats have already passed in the House sweeping gun control uh, reform that is no doubt going to die in the Senate. Um, and he both had these very reasonable proposals and, and made an impassioned plea about politicians getting together, which I think is really the thrust of what he's about, right? Having a different kind of message and not coming out and being on you know, this, the blue team or the red team. How do you think it played? Well, I think that it played kind of the way that you're saying it. Um, for me, it looked like, well, he's done a lot of things before. So this is not out of his realm, okay? No. He's, um, he's sort of done things. If you go on YouTube, there's videos of him speaking as a motivational speaker, uh, he does different things and he's sort of a free spirit, right? He's written mm -hmm. a book. So I don't, because he's done these things before, I didn't really have a strong reaction either way, other than to feel like, okay, this is interesting because he's from Uvalde, right? And he is a gun owner and he's making a plea for everyone to be reasonable and I think, how could he not be affected by what happened? I mean, if that, of course. If, think about it being your hometown. I was thinking about that myself. If that were my hometown and I was looking at all these little kids, yeah. um, I don't really question his sincerity. I mean, if he wants to run for public office, I don't think he needs this format to do it. I think that he's popular enough and there's a lot of other ways he could go about it. I think he was just affected by it and wanted to share what he was feeling. And at the end of the day, if his motivation is to get into politics, it's like the only business worse than acting, the only business worse than politics or worse than acting rather is politics. So if that's what he wants, then good for him, have at it. Yeah, I don't know that it, it's going to, I don't think he's going to lose any real fans. I don't think that really matters. I don't know that he gains yeah. any either. I think though, and I don't doubt for a second the sincerity of what he was talking about and how he felt when he held that child's sneakers at that press conference. That was unbelievably moving. Um, that was not contrived in any kind of way, I don't believe. On the other hand, he was, dare I say, handed an opportunity to help stake out an area um, that is consistent with the kind of vague political conversations he's had in the past, which is, as you said, somewhat different, not knee-jerk Hollywood, um, down the line, you know, check every liberal box. He's a bit different. He's a bit, he's, I, don't, I don't know what he is exactly. Um, and I think the way he responded to this case was that he was a little bit of both things. He believes in reasonable gun control, but he's also a gun owner and knows that we're not going to get rid of guns. He's a Texan. And he clearly, you know, I think woven through all of what he was saying was this kind of um, neo-Texan mentality, not unlike maybe a Beto O'Rourke, right, who's seen as sort of a new kind of Texas politician. Again, McConaughey's not going to call himself a politician yet. 
But, you know, in a world where we had Donald Trump and Ronald Reagan and lots of people who've made this transfer, there's something that is beginning to look less and less um, nutty about the, you know, that a, a character, a kind of boho hippie character like Matthew McConaughey getting into the political realm. It looks less and less um, crazy than it might have looked five, 10 years ago. It really doesn't. But then again, well, he's very charismatic. Very he's very charismatic. Um, and he also and seems to be very, um, your, his, the roles he's played, you wouldn't necessarily think so, but he seems to have a certain, you know, gravitas about him. He takes this stuff seriously. Right. Right. Well, some of the roles he played, I think, uh, displayed rights, right? So um, I do think, though, you bring out a great point, Brother Hackett, in that I think he's trying, I love this term, as you so aptly do so many times, neo-Texan, right? I do mm -hmm. think there are a group of people, Beto's one of them, and there's others, and perhaps Matthew himself, who are trying to say, you know, it, it's very powerful what I found was to have him say, I basically grew up with guns, right? Yeah. I'm from Texas. Mm -hmm. I grew up with guns. And here's how I feel, which is a little different. It may surprise you how I feel. And right. um, I think he might be speaking for a lot of other people. And that might also be what motivated him to do that. It, yeah. it, was, it was refreshing to see that at least he came out he doesn't need to do these things. He certainly has enough money to last a lifetime and enough fame to last a lifetime. So again, I looked at his motives as being sincere. And in fact, if anything, he's got more to lose than to gain. Right? I think what's really interesting too, he's gonna to be dogged down the road. I mean, the vote will come in Congress, nothing will happen, but he will be dogged down the road at every public appearance and you know, the next time he's promoting a movie about these things and about this, kind of um, middle of the road approach he's taking. I got, these things may appear completely unrelated and they may be completely unrelated, but there was the announcement in New Jersey this week of the moderate party, which is some attempt to find some common ground between what obviously is an increasingly polarized um, membership in the established parties. I, I don't know that Matthew McConaughey is gonna be leading some great national charge for you know moderation or a third way, but I think he does represent a very kind of inchoate feeling out there among people who are like, the way we're going is not working and something else has to happen. And if Matthew McConaughey is the man who at least is at the, one of the folks at the Vanguard, let's see what happens. So I yes. thought it was interesting. Uh, we, cannot, we cannot pass where we do not revisit the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. Right. Um, we all know what happened in that case. One of the things we wanted to talk about, um, and I'll let you take the, the lead on this, is what happens now? You recall that Amber Heard was, um, a, a, was Johnny Depp was awarded over $10 million that Amber Heard is on the hook for. Um, her attorney made it clear moments after the verdict in the following days that she does not have that kind of money. Um, there's some coming to her, but the net loss is gonna be somewhere in the vicinity of eight to $10 million that she ostensibly is on the hook to pay. What happens now? Um, and how does Johnny Depp collect his money if he collects his money? Isn't that a great question? So yeah. her attorney has been going on television and I, I found this fascinating. Her attorney has been saying, well, Amber doesn't have the money. 
there was something about, you know, she lives in a very modest house, sort of an hour outside of L.A. And uh, there's this notion that, okay, in general, what happens if you win a case and the person you win the case against doesn't have the money? Mm -hmm. So a couple of things can happen. One thing is, let's say Johnny Depp's team, which we know how good they are, they do their due diligence and they find out that, you know, you do discovery or whatever means you need to find out. And you find out that Amber doesn't really have that kind of money, right? Which is essentially saying, now it is going to be appealed. So while it's going to be appealed, this might be stayed pending appeal. But right. let's say it wasn't being appealed and Amber doesn't have $8 million to just sit there and write a check because most people think, oh, you win a judgment, you come out, you write a check, here's your check, you go home. But it doesn't work that way. What happens when Amber, if she doesn't have the money, a couple of things can happen. One is there could be a settlement between the parties confidentially for less money. So you're saying that Amber has $4 million. Okay, well, we'll take $4 million. Um, another way you could work it out would be to say, well, we're going to take a piece of Amber's income over the next 10 to 15 years. And that's called an override royalty, where let's say she does another Aquaman and makes $8 million, then you're going to get a certain percentage, maybe 10% or 20% of that, right? Um, so that's another way. And that's like that's that's attached to any work she gets. That's like having, you know, a leg bracelet on or something like that. I mean, if you're Sony or Paramount or or any other studio, that automatically just gets taken out of her paycheck. Is that how that it, works? It can be done. She can there's something called a letter of direction where she can direct Sony or any third party company to pay Johnny Depp. It's done a lot. It's called a letter of direction where she's saying to the company, she's authorizing them to pay Johnny Depp. Okay. Interesting. So Interesting. That, that's another way. Now, the third way is if she resists, and again, this is all pending an appeal, but the third way that things could work out would be that she doesn't comply at all. And she just says to Johnny, you know, screw you, I'm not going to pay you. Well, then what can happen there is Depp's legal team can serve garnishment on any wages she makes in the future, they could theoretically possess her house. They could come and seize the house, depending on the state. Uh, they could seize the assets, any assets that she has. So say somewhere, Johnny gave her a $5 million ring and she has that ring. They could come and seize that ring as an mm -hmm. asset to put towards the judgment. So it's very, very interesting because it's just sort of like, oh, here's $8 million to, you know, pay this money. But she's saying, I can't pay what I don't have. It's, it's a very, very common defense. You, you and I have talked about the appeal. Um, the appeal is on questions of law. Is, right. the, is the jury's awarding of the money to Johnny a question of law? Um, no. 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 It, so it would have to be it would have to be overturned. The appeal would have to be successful. And then we'd start all over again with the, with the, with a new 
a penalty phase, right? It would almost have to be like something that was admitted into evidence or where the judge made a grave error. Let's say that she completely erroneously instructed the jury the wrong way. Let's say that the instructions she gave the jury were for assault and battery and not for what she instructed them for, which was defamation. Okay, right. it would have to be something that egregious in order for it to be overturned. And right. as we all know, if you saw the judge, even if you didn't know law, you can just kind of tell when people know what they're doing. And I definitely think that the judge knew what she was doing. So, you know, after Amber appeals and she doesn't win, let's say she doesn't win. I'm not positive of it, but I'm pretty confident. I would bet a lot of money on it. At some point, it might be a year from now, it might be two years from now, she is going to have to pay. And if she doesn't have the money by then, these different modes of collection that we've discussed are what these parties are gonna be looking at because not many people have a check for $8 million. That they just can write. to be clear, it's not the state of Virginia's job to collect the money. It's Johnny Depp's job to collect the money. Yes. Is that right? No, right, correct. The state has, has no interest and in, in no involvement in that. It's up to the parties themselves. I see. Okay. Right. So Depp could decide, and this is where it becomes more about the reputation management that I kind of get involved with. He could decide, I've already won, right? Not only did I win um, in, the, in the minds of the public it, during the trial, I then won the decision. Um, am I going to go after her knowing that she doesn't have the money and, and grind my boot heel uh, deeper into yes. her? Well, yes, he, he very well might. Okay. This is a man, I don't know, I don't know if you read the stories over the weekend. He had a dinner in, in England that, where he spent, I think, $52,000 on Indian food right. at, uh, in Birmingham, in England, not even London, outside of London, in another city. Right. So he likes to spend dough. Um, right. And he may um, think that he needs it. So that remains to be seen. I honestly don't think the way things stand right now, that if it emerged that he was trying to garnish the money from her, that it would hurt him necessarily uh, in, in the court of public opinion. I think right now there's been some polls lately um, that show that they don't think he should lose any jobs. People think that she should lose jobs because of what she did to him. You know my point of view on this. I think it's appalling. Uh, and maddening and just, uh, I don't understand it whatsoever. But right now the public is braying for our Amber Heard and I don't think Johnny uh, would have a hard time there. That said, with that said, one last thing, I think that if she had a Kickstarter campaign, she could raise a fairly significant amount of money from a lot of women and men um, who would help her uh, to pay this. I know that may sound ludicrous considering you know, the kind of gen- general feeling of public opinion, but $8 million, it's a lot of money, but there's a lot of people out there. We've seen astonishing money being raised in Kickstarter campaigns, arguably for people much, much more sympathetic than Amber Heard. On the other hand, um, getting to $8 million if you're interna- now an international film star, um, might that be as hard as it looks. And you know, the interesting thing too, is that she may have to work. So she's in a, a- weird quantity, right? Because theoretically, she may really want to work. She may have to work to pay off this judgment. And yet she may go out there and find that, I don't think this is going to be the case, but you never know that if people don't want to hire her, 
she's going to be in a very, very stressful situation for a long time. Right, right. Let's wait and see what happens. Yes. Thomas, I'm going to say a word I never thought I would say on this podcast. You know what that word is? Go for it. Golf. Oh! Wow. So this is not usually this is not usually the realm we get into, but you know because it's involving personalities and because it is seeping into the realm of kind of media and politics um, and controversy and international affairs, I thought we would. The story is about the Saudi Arabia-backed new golf league called LIV or Live um, that is having its first tournament this week outside of London. It has caused a massive amount of controversy. Controversy in golf, again, three words that don't normally go together, but are going together this week. Because Phil Mickelson, of course, one of the most famous golfers out there, has joined this tour. The story is the Saudis are basically trying to put the PGA out of business, and they are paying obscene amounts of money to golfers who they are trying to lure onto their tour. This isn't like they're trying to have another, their own tournament. It, this would be as if they're trying to start the NBA. And, and, yes. and trying to buy LeBron and all the big players and paying them unbelievable amounts of money. They're paying supposedly Mickelson $200 million to join this tour. They're paying Darren, I think his name is Johnson, I can't remember his name right away, $130 million to join the tour. They supposedly offered Tiger a billion dollars to join this new league. Tiger turned them down, as have most of the young players. Heading up the league is Greg Norman, the Australian legend golfer. Um, who has said, along with Mickelson, some pretty terrible things about um, the Saudi Arabians. When confronted, for example, with the uh, uh, Jamal Khashoggi um, um, murder news and story and the various other kind of shenanigans that the Saudis get up to, Greg Norman said, we all make mistakes. This has become a political nightmare for some of these golfers. Um, as expected, the PGA this afternoon banned that, banned Mickelson and the other players who have joined this new league. This is war between the PGA and the Saudis. It is not a good look for Mickelson and these golfers to be joining with a league that's run by the Saudi Arabians. The fact of the matter is sports writers at every press conference before every tournament um, are asking these golfers about Khashoggi, about the war in Yemen, about the treatment of women, about the treatment of homosexuals. And they just ask these questions. And not surprisingly, the Phil Mickelsons of the world don't have really good answers. Basically what they say is, well, you can't hold it against them. And also, well, they're paying me an F load amount of money. He, I mean, Mickelson himself was on the record calling them scary MFs. Yes. But this is a huge amount of money. And what am I going to say? This is just an unbelievably bad look. And, you know, again, the more golf was written about in this context, the worse it is for them. And I don't know how these guys reputationally shake this. It's just terrible. Yeah, and you know, you bring out a good point. I mean, if you're Nicholson, what, what can you really say? You have to be careful what you say because you can't bite the hand that's feeding you. And you can't bite the hand that's feeding you. And the reason, one of the reasons he says that he hates the PGA, get this, I quote <laughs> you, because they are obnoxiously greedy. Hello? <laughs> right. The PGA is obnoxiously greedy? You're yes. taking money from the Saudis. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, again, for a sport that, again, if you watch any weekend of, of watching golf, you're, you'd be hard-pressed to say it's the most diverse and inclusive sport in the world, right? right? This doesn't help matters much. Right, no. That you're now teaming up with the Saudis. 
Uh, it's as if the Saudis kind of knew this would happen, and they if they just waved enough money in front of these guys uh, in their golf caps that some of them would take it. And so far, some of them have. I'm not sure the price is worth it to the Saudis. Um, uh, but again, if in the world of public relations, where as long as you spelled the name right, it's fine, the amount of press they're getting for this new golf league is astonishing. Well, a couple of things, right? They, they've been working on this for a while. So this yeah. didn't just happen overnight. This has been going on for the last two or three years with certain people like Greg Norman, and it, it's been being set up, okay? Right. So and the other thing is what, what really came to my mind when I heard about this is that, is this any different than the rock and roll superstars doing private gigs for the very same people that we're talking about and basically turning their head the other way and saying, yeah, I know there's human rights violations um, and there's other violations, but you know what? I got 10 million for doing half an hour's worth of work and it's there, you know, they're bad, but they're not that bad. You, the, so, the, the word you mentioned there that, that is salient in this case is private. Yes. That may have been the intention. And for maybe somewhere along the way, Phil Nicholson thought no one was going to notice that he was going to be in these tournaments. Like a lot of these rock stars do these weekend parties on some island for some, you know, Wall Street guy or from some, some Saudi sheikh. Um, and after the fact, they kind of hem and they haw and they apologize, but the damage is done and they're not going to do it again, right? This, these guys are embarking on a league. This is going to happen every weekend. Every place this league pops up, whether it's in the UK or in, in some Arabian country or somewhere else, Phil Mickelson, if he's going to appear at a press conference, is going to have to answer these questions over and over and over again. And it's slowly going to strip away whatever good feelings people had about Phil Mickelson if he's going to be basically carrying the bag of the Saudis week in, week out. I just don't know how you get around it. I think the example you raised is an excellent one, and a lot of people do things they shouldn't do, but the glare of this light on these golfers right now is so bright. There's nowhere to hide. No. You know? This no. is like playing on one of those Lynx courses in Scotland. There's no trees, right? right? It's just wind blowing at you. Wind and sand. Right. They, they get to a point where I think you get to a point where you say, I'm going to take the money, and then yeah. I'm going to deal with everything else that comes with it because it is a once in a lifetime opportunity. Like you don't know five years from now if this same kind of money would be available to these golfers. So I think they're looking at it that way. And, and, then, and then they're jumping and their legacy is tarnished. And does anyone, I mean, how many people today really care about their legacy to the point where that if you said, I'll give you a couple of hundred million and your legacy will be tarnished? I think most people would say, OK, tarnish my legacy. I'm OK. Maybe, with that. maybe, you know, it, it remains to be seen. And listen, golfers are not alone, right? There's people in Hollywood who've done business with the Saudis. You know, the uh, FIFA, the soccer league, gave Qatar the World Cup for next year. Lots of people are doing business with people like this um, who maybe would think twice about it. Um, but they right. press on. Um, but FIFA is a big organization, right? Which is, it's not a guy. It's not, it's not Phil Mickelson. It's not someone with a name attached to them. So their reputation is crap already anyway. So that, but that's a whole other story. Yeah, yeah. What else we got this week? Anything else? Um, I think. I have one more. You have one more. I have one more. You always you more? do. I do. And it's a new one that I came out today.
It's a, it's a new one that came out today, and it's about the world I used to work in, which is newspapers, which I love very much. Um, on the day where the Washington Post's homepage is dedicated to the making of all the president's men, no doubt the greatest newspaper movie ever made about two Washington Post reporters. On the day where the Washington Post and other big newspapers are covering the January 6th hearings that are going to be live tonight on television, which evokes back and harkens back to the era of Watergate and the great sort of press battles of that era. On a day like today, the Washington Post is mired in a sordid little internal news scandal involving two of its reporters and what else, Twitter. The story involves a political reporter named Dave Weigel who retweeted a joke he heard. The joke was not very funny and it was something like this. Every woman is bi. The question is whether, just what kind of bi are they? Bipolar or bisexual? Not very funny, kind of offensive. Oh. He retweets this. This causes the ire of another fellow Washington Post reporter named Felicia Sanmez, who tweets herself saying, I can't believe the Washington Post puts up with this, this kind of. Weigel um, apologizes. There's some back and forth with upper staffers. Sanmez, though, is still upset about this and continues to tweet over the weekend. Another reporter goes after Sanmez and says, you really should stop doing this. You're kind of bullying and carrying on and your repeated and target public harassment feels like bullying. She shoots back. He comes off Twitter. It has become this ridiculous, horrible mess where this reporter is now trying to get, well, I don't know what she wants from Weigel. Weigel, the guy who tweeted the joke, has been suspended for a month for retweeting this joke. Um, Again, on a day where they're heralding one of the greatest moments in American journalism that the Washington Post created with Woodward and Bernstein, this is a sordid little story. And it goes to show that newspapers and well, all kinds of organizations, media organizations or otherwise, haven't figured out what to do and haven't kind of laid out the rules or the road to people. You know, maybe rule number one should be don't retweet jokes. You might think it's funny, but it's not. It's ironic to some degree also that here we are again on another week talking about jokes and comics as we did yes. about Chris Rock and David Chappelle yes. again, very, and, and Ricky Gervais. Yes. Very, very different. But you know, humor is one of those dangerous things, particularly right now in the world we live in. And this is just a mess for a number of different reasons, largely because media organizations don't have any policies. I come from a very old world where Nobody wanted to know your opinion. The idea that anybody would have tweeted, I remember when Twitter first existed, you know, and I remember being the editor of People Magazine, and I didn't want or frankly let people tweet because I didn't think their opinions mattered and I didn't think that they were gonna do any good for the gathering of journalism. Um, this is an example of something like that. But that day, that day is long and, and yeah, gone and forgotten, right? And I so know. while you were you know, speaking, I'm thinking about this and, you know, the rule should be just don't use social media, but you can't obviously say that, right? Well, but, and then don't, and then the attacking of your colleague in the, on Twitter. I mean, right. what's, what's so horrible about this is that's become a, you know, what is usually kind of dealt with in-house has now become, well, stuff for a podcast that two guys like us are doing. And, and, and it's become public forum. Yeah. That's what yeah. it's become, which is sad. Yeah. None of this is good. None of this is advancing the cause of journalism, as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, on that curmudgeonly note, I think we may be done for another week, don't you? Yes. Yes. I am entertainment brother Larry Hackett signing off. I am entertainment brother Thomas Valentino signing off.
Folks, if you like this podcast, um, subscribe to it, uh, click approvals, uh, tell your friends, send us reviews, uh, and spread the word. 